Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome everyone, it's Coot here. Welcome to another super special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. As you know, I've just released the Soul Talk podcast a few weeks ago. We've been getting rave reviews and I want to thank each of you for subscribing to the Soul Talk podcast. And I want to thank you all for sharing the Soul Talk podcast with your friends, with your community on social media. The word is spreading. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I really love uh, hearing from you in terms of how the Soul Talk podcast has been changing your lives and giving you insight and inspiration to live more authentically. Some of you have asked how you can stay in touch with me. Uh, simply go to www.cootblackson.com. Uh, make sure you enter your name and email. You'll receive some free gifts and uh, you'll get weekly inspiration from me straight to your inbox. In today's very special episode, I'm very excited to interview someone who has uh, inspired me. Her books have inspired me in many ways and literally millions of people around the world. She is a pioneer, uh, one of the most authentic human beings I've had the pleasure of meeting. Uh, she is author of the number one New York Times bestselling book, Women, Food and God. Now, how is that for a title? Uh, she's appeared on uh, many national television shows, including The Oprah Show, 2020, NBC News, The View, CBS Early Show, The Today Show. I mean, the list goes on. I think she's a legend. I think she's amazing. I think uh, you are going to have your hearts and souls expanded as a result of today's conversation. She writes about some incredible subjects, some really important topics that I really know will, will touch your life. She's a pioneer when it comes to, and was one of the first to link uh, compulsive eating and perpetual dieting with deeply personal and spiritual issues that go far beyond food, weight, and body image. And uh, just, you know, I've had the opportunity to to meet her uh, briefly and one of the most humble and authentic human beings I've just had the pleasure to, to just uh, cross paths with. So I'm really excited to welcome to today's a uh, special podcast episode of Soul Talk, Janine Roth. Janine, welcome. Mm, oh, thank you. What a gorgeous introduction. I hope I yes, can even begin to live up to that. Thank you so much. <laughs> I am, honestly, I am so excited to have you. I mean, I just have to say that, like, we've met a few times, you know, uh, at conferences and things, and it's, it's so funny. I told you the last time when you said, who, like, oh, I'm Janine so-and-so. I, like, I'm, I knew of you. I've read a few of your books. I'm like, you're Janine. Oh, my God. I didn't know. And just, just you carry yourself with such humility and realness. And I just want to want to acknowledge that. And uh, I just want everyone to know that I just think you're the real deal. And it's a real pleasure to, to have you here today. So welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So uh, I have a bunch of questions for you and I uh, want to kind of dive right in, but I would love to just ask, especially maybe for those that don't know of you or your background, um, like how does one get started or how did you get started doing what you do? Because I, I mean, I'm going to assume there's not really a, uh, like, like a, like a college course to teach, people to do what you do in terms of food and eating, especially the way you do it. So I'm just curious, like a bit about your journey, if you could share with us how you got to, to, to be teaching, you know, about food and body image and connecting spiritual issues and relationship to food and, and just, just wondering how that all began for you. Yes. Well, it started or I started because 
I was in abject misery about my relationship mm. with food and my body and, and, and deeper issues about self-loathing that got expressed through food and my body. I saw it in those many years um, that it was all about the size of my body, but I could not seem to fix that or heal that. Uh, despite all the diets I had been on, and I, I, from the time I was 11 to the time I was 28, I went on every single possible diet there was, including diets of my own making, uh, mm. like the all-brown diet, the cigarette diet, Shasta cream soda, and coffee diet. That was one of the diets I went on. That sounds very healthy, by the way. <laughs> you know what? I did not care about health in those years. All I wanted mm. to do was be thin because I was convinced that if I was thin, I would be happy and that my suffering mm. about everything would end. And, and, and obviously it didn't. And I gained and lost over a thousand pounds. And at some point I was so distraught because I had this, I had, wait, wait, did, 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 I, did I hear that accurately? You, you, you gained and lost over a thousand pounds. Yes. Definitely. Probably wow. that's a conservative estimate. Wow. Wow. Yes. Wow, that's huge. I could zing up and down the scales with alarming regularity, 10, 15 pounds every couple of weeks. At some point, however, I decided I was going to be thin and that was that. I mostly was mm. fat or overweight and or chubby, I should say, about 25, 35 pounds over my natural weight. And then at some point I decided I was going to be thin no matter what. And I became anorexic for a couple of years and weighed 82 mm. pounds by only limiting myself to 150 calories a day. Um, but then I couldn't stand mm. it anymore after a couple of years. And I went on a binge to end all binges and I doubled my weight. I gained 80 pounds within two months. And oh it was then that I became suicidal and realized I couldn't keep living like that. And it was wow. also then at the bottom of my suffering where I realized that the one thing I had never done in all those years was be curious about what I was using food to express or assume that I was making sense sort of like I was talking in a language, like if I hadn't known Spanish, but I was talking to myself in Spanish and I couldn't understand what I was saying because I didn't understand the language that I'd been trying to talk to myself in a food language uh, that I didn't understand, but I'd never been interested in understanding. And so I decided that I'd give myself a couple of weeks and... Um, see what would happen without dieting, shame, deprivation, fear, or punishment. And uh, just tell myself I could eat what my body wanted. Actually, it was what my mind wanted in those days. And that changed everything. I did understand at that point that so much of what had been going on for me had been about the self-loathing and the shame and the deprivation and the punishment and the fear. And as soon as I took that away, I felt like I'd been let out of prison. took a while after that for me to regulate myself because I had been dieting or binging for 17 years and I either knew how to diet or I knew how to binge. So then it took a while. And then after I figured out that dieting and deprivation wasn't the answer, I decided to start a little teeny group. And I didn't have any money, and I was living in a friend's house. Um, I was a nanny for her two-year-old, living in their basement down a very long country road. And she told me I could use their house, but I was still quite overweight. I was still 80 pounds. I had gained that 80 pounds, and I hadn't lost weight yet. Put an ad in the paper, and they, I said, a, you know, compulsive eating group, a dollar a night, mm. and I was mm. going to meet people in front of the liquor store in the Aptos Village shopping center because they lived on a country road, and I only had a summer dress. It was the middle of winter, but I only had one thing to fit me, and so I got a permanent, but then the, the person couldn't take out the rollers on the morning. She had to have surgery. <laughs> told me to keep the rollers in. So I met my first group of people who were in my very first group, 
in front of a liquor store in the middle of winter in a summer dress, hugely overweight and in curlers and waving to everybody saying, hi, I'm your leader. I'm going to help you break free from compulsive eating. And many of them ran from the parking lot. Um, and those that didn't stayed, came back to the house with me and became the first contributors to my first book, Feeding the Hungry Heart. Wow. Wow. That's an amazing, <laughs> an amazing start. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So you mentioned something about there came a moment where you made a decision that you were going to just allow yourself to just not be, not diet and just eat whatever you felt or at least thought and take the, you said something like, like, like dropping the shame, taking the shame away. So I'm curious, what did you do or, or how did you, or what was the process inside of yourself to, cause it's one thing to say, okay, I'm not going to shame myself anymore. I'm not going to judge myself anymore, but I'm curious, like, was there something you did that actually, enabled you to drop the shame because that that's a huge thing like what what happened or what's the step that someone can take to do that right that is a very big thing and um i have worked a lot with that in recent mm -hmm. years and um mm -hmm. uh and so can talk to you about what I've discovered in the last 10 years or so, when I Please. did that with food, it was mm -hmm. more that the very act of not keeping myself in the prison of dieting and telling myself that I did not have to diet and I was never going to go on another diet again, that was such a big deal that that in itself in those days was enough because I did feel like I'd been let out of prison and I was resolute about not dieting. And dieting for me, that kind of restriction, because I had been on so much restriction for so many years, was sort of um, equivalent to shaming myself. There was an ongoing voice, what I now call the crazy ant in the attic voice, Mm -hmm. um, that voice in the head, that shaming, punishing voice that no matter what a person ever does, no matter what I ever did, no matter how thin I ever got um, before I stopped dieting, it was never enough. That voice lives within every single one of us, I have discovered, because that voice in my head, the crazy ant in the attic, is is relentless and also cruel and so mm. i and being at the effect of that voice is feeling ashamed and that's actually the purpose of that whole mechanism right there um because it's a protective voice in the end mm. that voice is a, a protective voice developed very early in our lives and was meant to keep us safe but it has become maladaptive for most of us. And the only way I know, bringing this up to the present, Coot, the only way I know now to stop that voice is to name it, and to really, mm. really name it, and to understand that we and that voice, let's call it the crazy aunt in the attic, for some of us it's the crazy mm -hmm. uncle, are not the same. So many people are merged with that voice that they don't understand. I didn't understand for the longest time. If that voice said to me, look at you, your thighs are so big, you are disgusting. And that's sort of the tone of voice that that voice talks in. I, be I believed that. There was no questioning. There was no distance. There was, I mean, my, I might have been overweight, but the, wor the moral judgment on top of that was was not fair and not true. I was not a disgusting human being because I had big thighs. Mm, mm, mm. Absolutely. You know, I often say that just because we have a thought in our mind and just because it's there doesn't mean it's real. You know, doesn't mean it's That's that. right. And, That's and so right. you talk about this voice, uh, Janine. How, how does someone create, start creating uh, a, a relationship with the voice where there's space, where there's distance, where we can actually 
uh, experience that that it's that it's not me. Like that voice is not yeah. me. That that judgment is not me. Right. Like is is there something we can do? Yeah, and I'm sure many question. people listening to this conversation, you know, have. Like we have voices in our mind. I'm not enough. I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not just the list goes on. So what do we do? It does. Yes. The the three top tunes that that voice in my head like to sing to me were, you're not worthy. You're unlovable. You're too needy. You're not enough, basically. Uh, Worthless. And so how I've learned and what I teach, for instance, um, in workshops, I'll often ask a group of people within the first half an hour that, that they've gotten there to please write down 10 criticisms they've made about themselves since they walked in the door. This is within half an hour. Many people already have more than 100 that they've hmm. made, that they have silently, and, and some only have five. And some have 20 and some have 50, but the list, you know, there's a big gamut because we don't actually realize that that voice is going until we go to sleep or knock ourselves out in some way, that voice is ongoing. And so that voice doesn't shut up. Uh, so the first thing to do is to, to name it to, and to put it out there. And if you want to, you put it on paper and you have that voice speak to you in, this, in the you tent. So I can't believe you, you know, didn't wash your hair today. I mean, some people on their list, it's extraordinary what's on their list. I can't believe you didn't wear um, matching socks. I can't believe mm. you had the nerve to wear those pants. They look terrible <laughs> on you. And like that. And, and, you know, and, or you had the guts to show up to another thing. Who do you think you are? I mean, it is a mm. very intense voice. And the, so the first thing to do mm. is separate it from the I. So rather mm-hmm. than I am, uh, I can't believe I wore these rings to realize that there is a voice that everybody's got. It's part of the development of a human being to have a voice. Lots of names for this voice, the inner parent, the inner critic, the inner judge, the superego. And I call it the crazy ant in the attic. I used to call it the GPS from the twilight zone (laughs) because, you know, the directions that it gives you are just not helpful. This voice is not your friend. So it's first to write it down and get it. Once you, you know, get it, that this voice is constantly talking to you, it's, and, it's, and it's, although it has your best interest in mind, it's, it's usually cruel. And no matter what you do, you cannot satisfy it. So then, depending on what you're most comfortable with, some people are comfortable with just saying, stop. You know, just every time they feel themselves collapsing because what happens with this voice is that we often have a physical sensate reaction. We feel small, we feel diminished, we collapse. We suddenly, we're walking along feeling everything's okay and then suddenly it feels like somebody's pulled the ground from underneath us and we don't even realize what's happened because we're so identified with this voice. We don't get it. Right, right. And so you realize, yeah. And then you backtrack and you see, oh, uh, a friend of mine said she didn't want to go out to dinner with me. And then the voice, the GPS or the crazy aunt or whatever you want to call it, acted up. And then I felt small and then I felt unworthy and then I felt unloving and now I'm believing it. And so to track the steps of it and then also to then disengage. And the disengagement is the last step, naming it seeing the effects of it, or seeing the effects of it and then naming it, whichever comes first for you, um, naming the exact thing it's saying to you, and it's not that hard, and then disengaging from it, either with humor, you know, if the voice says, mm-hmm. I can't believe you ate that much for breakfast, you know, humor would be, yeah, you think this is a lot, you should have seen what I ate for dinner. So you could, you could do it with humor, mm-hmm. you could do it with, with um, assertiveness, no, stop. Hmm. Or you can simply do it with, you are not my friend. I get it that you're protecting hmm. me, 
but you are not protecting me now. Stop. So it just depends on what's easiest for you. I'd love it. I love the way you just broke down those steps. Um, and, and I'm also hearing, like, as we become aware, there is a level of uh, intentional responsibility that we all have to, yeah. to, to choose, right? To, to relate to this part of us uh, powerfully and differently. Uh, yeah. And, and, and so I'm really hearing that piece of responsibility, not just sort of allowing this part to just run our lives or run our minds and take over, you know, to actually to look at this part and say to relate to it with humor or or intentionally powerfully say stop takes a level of responsibility for us. Yes, it and, does. Uh, and awareness. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think mm-hmm. there's anybody who doesn't want to stop suffering from being under the thumb of this voice because it's horribly painful. And even if it's not like big, big, horribly painful, it's, we never feel like we're good enough. You know, this is a voice that will tell you you're an imposter in your own life. This is a voice that is quick to, to tell you you did it wrong. You, I mean, well, you know, sometimes when this voice is talking to me in my life, um, you know, even after I've, you know, just written this new book, it it does not hesitate to say to me, you wrote the wrong book. You don't get it. You wrote the, you know, this voice is merciless in what it will say. It will, it will say anything. And so I'll have to be very aware of not letting it have its way with me. Um, otherwise, I end up believing it. Because really what the voice, the, the point of this voice is trying, as I said, it's a protective voice. And it's basically saying to you, if only you hadn't done or said that, then you wouldn't be feeling this. So it's trying to control as if you could be controlled, you know, you could control the outcome of everything. And so, yeah, it does take responsibility, but you know, all you have to do to uh, see, to, to want to take responsibility is see how much you're already suffering. It's not like you're not already mm. suffering from this place. You are. Mm. Beautiful. Powerful stuff. You know, Janina, I, I have a, have a thought. I was reading somewhere on your website, by the way, folks, I, I want to invite each of you, if you are not aware of Janine's work, uh, her website is www.janineroff.com. Dot com. We'll put the, the link in the show notes. Check out her, her events, her site, um, her books. It's just amazing work. But there was something on your website that we just started to touch on, but I wanted to move it in that direction. It, it went something like that you believe that the way we eat, uh, that we eat the way we live and mm-hmm. that our relationship to food Money, love is an exact reflection of our deepest held beliefs about ourselves and the amount of joy, abundance, pain, scarcity we believe we have or are allowed to have in our lives. Right. That struck me. That really, I mean, that was so simply but powerfully put. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Like, what do you sure. mean? Like, like, break that down. Yes. Well, we're we're in a way we're we're walking microcosms of all of our beliefs you know if i mm. speak to my husband in a certain way that's coming from a belief that i have that you know if i if i'm aggressive or harsh with him i have some kind of belief that i have a right to speak to him like that that he did something that he shouldn't have done. You know, it's sort of like almost everything we do is a transmission of what we really feel or what we really believe. And our relationships, for instance, let's take food. Let's take, you know, I mean, we can take anything. Uh, Food is a fabulous doorway because we have to eat every day. But of course, so is what, you know, so is our reaction to being sick or being rejected or holding grudges or being sleepless in the middle of the night. I mean, how we meet everyday situations is an, is an expression 
of our core beliefs about what's possible and who we are. I'll take food first because that's what you asked me about. If I'm standing in a line, and I do this a lot with my retreat students, I teach retreats a couple of times a year, and one of the highlights of the day is that we do uh, eating meditation together, and so they take food, they, you know, they stand on a line and they take food, whatever they want or the amount that they choose what they want, they sit down, and then we look at their plates. I mean, it doesn't sound mm. as awful as it just sounded, but anyway, we look and see um, what they believe about what's mm. possible vis-a-vis the food on their plates. So it could be that there were blueberry muffins and um, somebody is actually intolerant gluten intolerant, and yet took a blueberry muffin, nonetheless. Mm. Or um, I remember one time I had an interaction with somebody about pancakes and another interaction Mm. about lasagna. I mean, we've had quite amazing interactions about the food that most of us don't think about. We don't realize Mm. the unconscious um, tape that's going on. And so Mm. somebody with pancakes or... Uh, blueberry muffins could be thinking, um, well, I'm gluten intolerant, but hey, I deserve this because I've had a difficult day today. And this might also be the last time I ever get to taste this blueberry muffin, these pancakes. This is, and, and because this is a scarcity issue here, because I'll never get this again. And right now, Usually what happens with food, but this can also happen with money. Right now, everything good in my life boils down to this blueberry muffin. I mean, we don't realize how one focus <laughs> we become. And mm-hmm. so I deserve this. I've had a hard day. I might never get it again. And I don't have enough of what I, I really mm-hmm. want in the rest of my life, but I can get enough of this. So to hell with everything else. So right there in that little, that little, you know, three second interaction that I, all those beliefs, there's somebody who's saying, I don't have enough of what I really want. There's, there's, there's scarcity here. Um, This is going to be the last time I'll ever get to have something good. There's only one source of goodness in my life, and it's this blueberry muffin. And to hell with my body, I'd rather feed my mind and this this sort of like, you know, like frozen child part inside me. I call it the ghost children or a ghost child mm-hmm. than feed my body because cause I'm not because it's hard to do this if you're what I call standing in your own two shoes, and you're inside this body of yours. You know mm. when you're inside this body that eating something that spaces you out, depresses you, gives you a stomach ache, um, from which you will not feel so good tomorrow, later on tonight, right. won't give you energy. Um, you can't mm. be standing in your own two shoes, being inside your body and doing that. So that's also an indication, oh, my mind is more important than my body, and what I'm doing is feeding my mind, not my body right now. So in that whole lineup of Domino's beliefs, we've got a lot of beliefs. And also, this is where delight and pleasure is, and this is the source of it. So it narrows down to the food on your plate, or if somebody is shopping, to the article of clothing they've got right there Um, and also narrows down to what most people believe that the discomfort they feel or um, any hurt or any loneliness like somebody say somebody's eating to feed the loneliness to assuage themselves to what I call Mm. change the channel in their mind Mm. soothe and comfort themselves what their belief is right there is that um, is that feelings can't be felt, and therefore I have to eat to make them numb. Right, right, right. Wow. And so, what is, is there a first step 
that someone can take to um, shifting their relationship with food or, or ending, because sometimes, you know, it can be a war that we have with, with food, right? And so I'm wondering, is there a first step that we can take to, to shifting this relationship with food? Because yes. food can have such a obsession and, and, and a control over us and a compulsive, you know, feeling that it, 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 you know, I mean, I hate to use the word war, but it can feel like a war sometimes. I remember when I was a kid, you know, Janine, growing up, I was a fat kid and I would eat everything. I mean, I'm eight, seven, eight, nine years old. And then, uh, you know, I made a decision to, to lose weight and, and went exercising and stopped eating and, you know, I'm like nine, 10 counting calories. I lost all the weight. I remember losing all the weight, but feeling still fat. And so uh, at a very young age, I had this relationship with food that felt like a war. So yes. uh, what, what's, the, what's the first step that someone can, can take to, to, you know, to end the war? Yeah. So I'm very happy that you asked me that because I often talk to people about the war they're engaged in with themselves. I, uh-huh. I, I mean, and I use that word war a lot because, um, because I saw that that's what I was doing inside myself. I was always at war with myself. And, yes, you know, yes. and it wasn't just about food. It was certainly for all of those years, food and me were the main opponents. But after... Mm. I healed the relationship with food. There was also a war with different parts of myself. I felt like just as in a war, I needed to vanquish certain parts of myself that I felt were wrong or broken or too much or not enough. As if the very act of vanquishing, which is what we do in a war, let's just destroy the enemy and you know what will be left will be peace which is so insane you know and and i started talking to people about this with food because because the idea of being at war with yourself i.e. meaning mm. if i shame deprive and fear myself i will end up a happy loving peaceful person <laughs> and that is that is insane that's a yes, mad thought and yet most of us have that not only about food but as I said because what I saw is that I had that about food but then when the food issue was over and I will go back to your question Coot because it's the same process each time whether it's about food or whether it's about other parts of yourself that you that you are secretly and in a way hiddenly, if that's a word, at war with, where you're constantly Mm. feeling like if I improve this and I get rid of this and I fix this, then what will be left are all the sparkling, sane, happy, joyful parts. And that Mm. whole reasoning is mad. It's just mad. Mm. And yet Mm. that's also how our culture believes too. So it's not, Mm. I mean, we're not alone. Let's just put it like that. You know, that is absolutely the field that we live in, Uh, you know, big cultural field that we live in and Mm. the MO in our culture Mm. that just get rid of it, improve this, try harder on this, you know, basically um, be a different person and you'll be fine. Um, mm. So I don't believe that at all, whether it's about food or whether it's about anything else. So what I believe mm. is I think somebody wrote a book last year or, be, you know, the year before, what's in the way is the way. And that mm. you use the very things you believe are broken or damaged or that you need to get rid of as doorways because you already have those. Now, with food, obviously, you have to eat a couple of times a day. So let's just take food, for instance. You have to eat. And so unlike other so-called addictions, which you can just not have in your life, alcohol, drugs, you know, things like that, food is something that you live with. And so it's it's more challenging, but it's also more fabulous because you still get Mm. to have it. And so with food, it becomes number one. And this is the first step always, what we were talking about, disengaging Mm. from the 
GPS from the twilight zone or the crazy aunt in the attic or that shaming voice. And that is a first step, no matter what you're talking about, because if you're not going to disengage, then that voice is the warring voice. That voice is Mm. pitting you against yourself always. And you can never do it right, ever. That voice Mm. is never satisfied. So that's the first thing. The second thing is always to be aware of what you're doing. So with food, it's on a sensate level to be aware when you're hungry, to be aware what your body, not your mind, wants, to pay attention mm-hmm. to that, to pay attention to the food, to, so to actually not distract yourself while you're eating, which is, mm-hmm. is a rare commodity these days because there's so much <laughs> external stimulation. Um, so to pay attention to what you're doing and when you're not hungry, because so many people eat when they're not hungry out of the desire to assuage or comfort or soothe or numb themselves, um, to, um, turn towards what's bothering you, not away from. And this is also Mm -hmm. radical and counterintuitive because if I'm feeling lonely, or sad, or bored, and I want to eat to make it better, or I want to make a phone call, I want to surf the internet, or I want to, you know, do a thousand other things, Um, those are distractions from what's going on, and that's assuming that I'm scared of that feeling, and Mm -hmm. what I've found is that it's not people feeling their feelings that hurts them, it's them not feeling their feelings, not questioning them. And so I take people through a very easy process of how to do Mm. that. So, you know, and it always starts in the body. Where is the feeling? Is it in your chest? Mm. Is it in your legs? Is it in your throat? Because there's always a physical location to any feeling. And then as people, Mm. believe it or not, ask themselves, uh, become curious, This goes back to the Mm -hmm. beginning of the conversation we had where I said, oh, wow, I was never curious about my relationship with food. I just always wanted to get rid of it. So you become curious about a feeling, it changes it almost instantly. Because before that time, you're like in a tug of war. Here's the war analogy again. Loneliness, Mm -hmm. don't want to feel the loneliness. Loneliness, and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. There's more tension and more tension. If I drop the rope, my part of the rope, there's no tension there. And so mm-hmm. the uh, loneliness just becomes a, a, a sort of sense feeling. Maybe it feels like a emptiness in my chest. Okay, mm-hmm. well, then I ask people, what does emptiness feel like? Oh, wow, the people are usually scared of emptiness, but when they actually let themselves feel it, then it just feels like open space. And then my next question to somebody would usually be, so what's scary about that? And there's nothing scary about that. Just Mm -hmm. my story about what it means. And so that's the next part. I ask people to question their stories and their thoughts. And this goes back to what you said, Mm -hmm. Kud, about just because you have a thought. Because usually what will happen is that people will say, well, oh, my God, I'm feeling lonely now, but this means I'm going to be lonely for the rest of my life, and I'm never going to have a partner, and I'm going to live and die alone, and I'm going to be a homeless person (laughs) eating food out of cat cat tins, and I won't ever have any money, and I'll have stringy, dirty hair, and, you know, and so once you get into what's going on with somebody, why they're eating or shopping or feeling terrible about themselves, you'll hear a story just like that. And then mm-hmm. you can question the story. Yes. Beautiful. Folks, I yeah. hope I hope as you're listening to uh, Janine, uh, things are stirring up because this is uh, clearly a much larger conversation than simply food. And Janine, I really love how you are, and even though we're talking about food on one aspect, um, you're opening up a, a conversation with food really as a metaphor. It's, it's, it's a metaphor for life and the way we relate to ourselves, the way we relate to life. And uh, just what I'm really hearing is uh, it, it's almost like a doorway into a spiritual path, which is really, uh, right. really wonderful, really it wonderful how we relate is. to food. 
yeah, how yeah. we relate to food, our awareness, our consciousness, our intention. All of this is, is really a, a spiritual path and practice. Yes. And, and so yes, it I is. think that that's really, really powerful. I guess what I want to say and add to that is um, what I discovered, which is mm. the reason I kept going and kept writing and, uh, you know, that I wrote a new book about this and other things is because I realized that even originally I thought that if I healed or if my relationship with food was healed, then all of the beliefs at the core of it would also have been seen through and dissolved. And what I discovered was that that wasn't true that after that. And so it's been many years and I'm at my natural weight and um, I haven't dieted and my relationship with food feels lovely to me. I would say it's a source of goodness and health and all of that. But what I realized was that some of, and actually many of the core beliefs that I had that drove me to food were still showing up in my life. So in this sort of low-level anxiety and discontent and mostly feelings of not being enough and somehow my, my loyalty to seeing the negative side of things, to seeing what was wrong and not what was right, and to having this sense about myself th- that where the beliefs that actually were at the bottom of me going to food were still operating on a much subtler level, but would show up in my relationship with my husband, in my relationship with my work, in my relationship with my friends, mm-hmm. in what, would, what I would say to myself when I couldn't sleep at night, what it was like for me when I, last year I broke my back and um, mm. what it was like for me to do that. What, you know, there were like a thousand different ways that I mm. saw that what I believed about life itself was, and myself in it, was affecting everything I did. And so that I saw, oh, it's not only that we eat the way we live or that, you know, um, are what you have the world is on your plate which is what i often say but that the way you spend your days what you put your attention on and what you focus on what you sort of keep going around and around about is the way you spend your life because our lives are nothing more than the hundred million moments of getting up, padding to the bathroom, taking a glass of water, being with our partners, friends, um, and our minds are going that whole time. They're, we're generating beliefs, or we actually have beliefs about what's possible for us, that joy, scarcity, deprivation, all of that. And we end up Seeing what we believe. I mean, I'll tell you this funny story. My husband has been looking for his down vest for three days. And he was convinced that it was in my writing studio. And then I was convinced he left it at a friend's house. And, I mean, we've looked in the closet. We've looked under tables. We've looked everywhere. And we take the same walk. We, we live out in the country. We take a walk up the hills and over a mountain and like that. We've taken that walk every day for the last week. And today, mm. we saw it in the most obvious place. It had been there the entire time, and we missed it every day. Why? Because we, we didn't see it, because we didn't believe it was there. We thought it was somewhere else. And so we see what we believe. And so right. my thing is, then let's look at what we believe so we can start seeing differently. Mm-hmm. Yes, becoming aware comes back to that awareness too. Because if we're not aware of what we believe, then our beliefs are often just running us unconsciously and creating our lives without any awareness. Yeah. Powerful. Right. Really powerful. Yeah. Really powerful. Yeah, it's Mm. very powerful. And so questioning Mm. those 
as they express themselves, like just, mm. for instance, complaining. I mean, one of the mm. things I did in the last two years, I stopped complaining. This was radical. Mm. I'm telling you, we're talking radical. That is radical. Radical. That is radical. Can you imagine? You just stopped like cold turkey? You just stopped complaining like that? I stopped like cold turkey because I realized mm. that most of my conversations with everybody were a litany of what did happen that shouldn't have happened, what should have happened that I wanted to happen, what somebody said that I wish they wouldn't have said, what I was given that I didn't want to be given, what I wasn't given that I did want to be given. I mean, on and on and on. And I saw this was happening everywhere, that I was always fighting, to talk about another war, fighting reality itself. It had already happened, and I was complaining about it. And so what good did that do? Mm -hmm. You know, nothing just to, like, voice my complaints. It was like running in place, and I was going against the grain. I was at Mm -hmm. war, if you want to call it that, or else a big skirmish with Mm -hmm. what had already happened that there was nothing to do anything about, and yet I was complaining about it. And I realized Mm -hmm. that my energy was getting so tied up in useless complaints that I wanted to see what would happen if I stopped. Because Mm. I also tuned into my conversations with friends and they were all about complaints too. You know, it was like a mutual exchange of complaints. Let's just tell each other what we, you know, what we don't like about what has happened or what somebody said or somebody did. And so I decided without telling anybody that I was going to stop complaining. And it was, it was fierce. I, t- I did tell a friend of mine, this couple friend of mine, about six months after I did it, what I was doing. And they were aghast because they said to me, we don't know what we talk about if we stop complaining. Wow. <laughs> oh my we, I mean, we I mean that's very know. telling. I mean, so telling. Wow. And after two weeks of me not complaining with Matt, my beloved husband, he, he asked me if I had the flu. Because oh I was goodness. so unnecessarily quiet and positive. And, and because what happened in the space of my usual mm. negative take, because that's what complaining is. It's mm. just like taking a clear glass of water with, because a clear glass of water is what's already happened. And let's just put, you know, mm. a, a, like purple food coloring in it so that it colors everything. It, was, it just colored everything. Mm. And so it's like taking this baggage and throwing it at Matt's feet or anybody's feet and saying, here's what I don't like about what already happened. And without doing that, what started happening is that my war with reality started lightening up. And I started seeing what wasn't wrong instead of what was wrong. And there were so many, there were so many more things about Mm. what wasn't wrong than there were about what was wrong, that it was astonishing. And I couldn't believe I had been missing that. Mm. And so there was lightness that just got shot through the days, every day, that's still going on. And, and, And sort of a ground of benevolence that I was aware of that as long as I was ranting against what happened, there was no room for it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's always, uh, I think, Janine, a source of suffering when we're in a moment. And usually when we're in a moment of suffering or, or lack of vitality or pain, if we check our consciousness, become aware, there's always something like this belief that the experience that I'm having is not the experience that I should be having. Yes. And it always, it always creates uh, a tremendous amount of suffering. So it does. I just want to invite everyone uh, listening in as you're listening into this uh, conversation with the amazing Janine Roth. Um, if there's any areas of your life, folks, that you are complaining, maybe you feel justified in complaining, like, but it's true. That person is that way. I want you to, uh, to take up, uh, be inspired by Janine's uh, uh, complaint challenge, so to speak, and, and really <laughs> take it on that you're going to make a decision today as a result of this conversation right now to take the next, let's just start with a week of no complaining 
and see what happens. I want to throw that out to all of the Soul Talk community. Uh, Jane, I have a few more questions. Um, yeah, sure. This has been a really, you know, enlightening conversation. Um, one conversation is, is, I guess, it's connected to food, but again, I think so much of our conversation has been way bigger than food and food as a metaphor. But this whole thing of you mentioned it uh, in, the, in the early part of our conversation, which is binging. And so I'm curious as to, in your experience, like why, do, why does someone binge? And how do we shift that pattern within themselves? Or even, even more specifically, like if someone is in the middle of a binge, and, and it could be food, but it could be alcohol, it could be drugs. I mean, we're spe- speaking about food, but I think it would be an important pattern to become aware of. So what what drives binging and like if we're in the middle of a binge could be ice cream. I used to binge as a kid on ice cream, you know, and uh, what do we do in the middle of the binge and, and shifting coming out of that? I guess trance, you know, uh, is how I used to experience it. So do you have a thoughts on that? Well, I would say again, Coot, that it comes mm. back to what we're th- before the binge um mm. what we're thinking what we're feeling what we believe about being alive in that moment food mm. seems for somebody who's binging and I certainly binged a lot too in desperation ice cream was also my mm. favorite food to binge on mm. um there is a, a usually there's a set of running beliefs that's going on that are that's tinged with some kind of urgency and emptiness and desperation and mm-hmm. belief that um whatever we're binging on is our last chance to get whatever it is we desperately need to have otherwise we'll die you know, there's just, just there's urgency there. That is not that is not anybody, and and I can't stress this enough because one of the things that I'm very into teaching now, and one of the things I'm doing now because I saw that I never did this before, and I called it before standing in my own two shoes, being in my body. You cannot bend and be located in your body. Have awareness in your body. The practice of presence is a good practice. You cannot binge and be sensing your body because your body, I used to binge till I was, when I was going from 80 pounds to 160 pounds, I used to binge until I was so nauseated. I couldn't eat another bite. I would cry. I would stop eating. Then I would stop only till I wasn't nauseated anymore and start eating again. So there was no sense of tenderness towards this body. And I think a binge is an act of, um, it's certainly not an act of tenderness towards ourselves. Certainly not. So I... So one of the things that I work with people in doing is developing tenderness. I call it the Mm -hmm. oh, sweetheart practice. So Mm -hmm. that we start treating ourselves, we start living as if we are worth our own attention, worth Mm -hmm. being in our bodies. And, And showing up here in the piece of the universe we've been given, which is our bodies. And for many of us, we don't locate here. You know, that there's a famous right. James Joyce line of, in, in his book, Ulysses, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. And most people do. They live a short distance. When we're binging, definitely not into the body. We're coming from a hunger that doesn't have anything to do with food. And food just happens to be the drug of choice. That's it. It's utterly, utterly. We could just be throwing ice cream on our thighs for all it has to do with our bodies. I mean, really. Uh, So part of that is the the, the sort of like 
you know, I, I teach, I, I, maybe it's a four-step process. The first one is disengaging from the crazy ant or the GPS from the yes. Twilight Zone because if you're mm. binging, let's just say you're binging on food and that voice is going on, then chances are you will binge more. Mm. So that voice is not going to stop you from binging. Mm. But if you're disengaged from that voice, if you've learned to disengage, mm. then first of all, chances are if you binge, you'll binge much less and chances are you won't mm. binge. And mm. standing in your own two shoes, in the practice of presence and attention of being in your body, really owning this body, feeling your feet on the floor, your butt in the chair, your back against the chair, your hands, under really sensing directly into the life force that's in this body. And once you do that, you can actually ask yourself, what would, what, if my body could speak right now, what would it say to me? You know, my body has a voice mm -hmm. too. And so you're mm -hmm. much more in touch with being physically located, the sensations here, which makes it very difficult to binge. And, and on top of that, makes you want to move your body because your body needs to move. It likes to move. It wants to move. It feels good to move. So that's that. And then the other part that you and I talked about today was actually turning towards rather than away from because the feelings. If somebody starts binging, it's because they, do, they want to obliterate themselves. Right. They want to get rid of the feelings they're having. And what I tell people is, well, unfortunately, it doesn't do that. But what you've done is create pain on top of the pain. So you started mm -hmm. with some kind of pain, and now you've added the pain of binging and not feeling well mm -hmm. on top of the original pain. So learning how to turn towards yourself, even I call it the practice of inquiry, that I write about a lot, even if it's just, where's the feeling? What does it feel? It's three minutes of doing that is enough. And the other thing I would recommend that people do every day, and this is also less likely to make starting to binge a possibility, is wake up in the morning and ask yourself, what's not wrong right now? Because that establishes that ground of goodness. And then during the day, a couple of times, to ask yourself, am I okay right now? And really look around. Use your eyes to see, your ears to listen. Really ask yourself, am I okay right now? Because most of us are entranced with the stories in our heads, and we don't feel okay when we actually are. I love that. Am I, am I okay right now? Yes. Powerful question. Really powerful. Because many times I think we are actually okay, but our minds are going and creating, you know, there is, is he in, in the future, creating some negative future fantasy about how we're not going to be okay or in the past. But I think many times if we really ask ourselves that question, it can bring us into the present. Yeah. And uh, right. back into this moment where we realize we are okay. Yes. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. Powerful. Yes. Powerful. You know, Janine, I, I read somewhere, uh, and maybe you've touched on it a little bit because there's so much you're saying in this conversation. I think it's so relevant, practical, and applicable um, and interconnected. Uh, but I read somewhere about the eating, you, you have eating guidelines. Is that correct? And I'm curious, um, like, what are the eating guidelines? Can you share? about the eating guidelines? They are basically listening to your body. I've refined them wow. many times and they're always changing, but the basic, mm -hmm. the basic idea of them is to listen to this body, to eat what mm -hmm. this body wants when it's hungry and until it's had enough. Mm -hmm. so that's the basic the guideline basic. of, of wow. eating. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and is that, is that, uh, you know, for someone like myself who likes chocolate and, you know, the occasional ice cream, like, what is the, I guess, you know, I can hear some people going, wow, eat whatever I want. No, 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 eat what your body wants. It's not whatever uh -huh. I want. 
There's a difference mm. between what my mind Good. wants and my body wants. Now, does your body ever want ice cream? Doubtful. Does your body ever want mm. chocolate? Doubtful. That doesn't mean mm. you never eat it, but you eat it with the recognition that my body might not agree with this right now, and I'm willing to deal with the results or the consequences of that. Got it. Got it. So there's consciousness there. Yeah, there's yeah. consciousness. There's, there's, oh, wait. There's, there's consciousness. You know, it's all about attention, Coot. It's mm-hmm. all about attention and awareness. I tell my students that attention is the way you bless yourself with love. It mm. all comes down to attention. Am I paying mm. attention or am I spacing out? Mm. I love it. Yeah. I have a, a, a final, I mean, this has been a beautiful conversation. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have a final question. Um, based on, you know, everything you've learned, Janine, your, your life work, your experiences, your ups, your downs, successes, failures, your entire life experience, if you were to sort of, sum it up in in a nutshell and you were to look back let's say at the you know the younger you who before like pre-teaching pre-starting your journey before writing the books maybe that 18 year old uh, young girl young woman Janine what 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 is the the essence of of your life wisdom your life experience that you would like her to know that maybe we can all um, be blessed from uh, that, that experience that you've had, what would you tell that, that, that the young you? What advice would you give the young you? I would say, sweetheart, there's no such thing as making a mistake. Um, whatever you do, you'll learn from. I would say be fierce and be kind. <laughs> I love it. Be fierce and be kind. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Janine, I've, I've really uh, personally loved this conversation mm. and your work, uh, I think, is, is so important in the world, so meaningful, so rich, so authentic. You know, as a young boy who was, uh, you know, a young boy growing up in London who was a fat kid and had a lot of issues around food uh, as a young kid, uh, I just... I want to say a big thank you for the work you're doing. I know you have a new book out called This Messy, Magnificent Life, which I am very excited to read. And so for those, you know, listening into the conversation, I'm sure many of the listeners have been really inspired by you and this conversation. I want everyone to find out about you and your work and your books. And so can you just share like what, what what's exciting in your world and, and the best way people can find out about you, your book and your work? Right. I'm thrilled about this new book because this new book takes my word work with food to the next level, which is what you and I have been talking about, Coot, how it applies to everyday situations so that right in the middle of your life, no matter what the situation is, that you can find sanity, clarity, goodness, joy, um, and it addresses the low-level anxiety and not enoughness that so many of us feel with the everyday challenges that we feel like complaining, disagreeing with what's happened, being sick, having broken bones, relationship issues, those things like that. I was very interested in integrating all that I had learned in my many years of spiritual practice and therapy, you know, lots of years on both, integrating those into daily life so that my life was an expression. Our lives can be expressions of what we know. We don't have to go somewhere else to learn everything. And we're not these big self-improvement projects that have to be fixed Mm -hmm. because we're not broken. So that's what this messy, magnificent life is about. It's about using the so-called messiness of our lives as doorways to the magnificent in the same way that food itself was the doorway. Um, and so people can find out about my work through my website, JanineRoth.com. Um, there's uh, the, all the stuff about my new book. And, of course, because I, it took me six years to write this book because I write mm. books after I've lived through the experience 
of it and constantly keep testing it out. Did I really learn this enough to write about it? And so it took me quite a while <laughs> to write this mm-hmm. because um, of so many core beliefs and so much deficiency and worthlessness that I was shocked to see that I had and so much loyalty mm-hmm. to the dark side of things, to negativity itself. Um, but that's mm-hmm. what I'm most excited about right now is that I put that all into the new book. So, um, and you can find out about it from my website, or of course you could go to your local bookstore or on Amazon or whatever way you like to find out about books. Beautiful, beautiful. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Janine, thank you for, for, for coming on today and just sharing your love and your wisdom with everyone. I feel your heart, you're brilliant and amazing. I want to invite everyone, folks, if you enjoyed this conversation, you have to check out Janine's work. It's it's uh, really amazing. Her new book, This Messy, Magnificent Life. Uh, go to Amazon, get the book, spread the word, tell your friends also. Um, and go to her website, JanineRoth.com. We'll post uh, the links in our show notes. I just, uh, Janine, I just actually randomly, it was like kind of like a tarot card moment. I randomly opened to page 118 of your book. And the first thing I saw was this quote uh, it's from you. It says, the more I stop fighting the battles I'd already lost, having a sick body, arguing with events that had happened years before, the calmer I became, the lighter I felt. Mm. So folks, uh, you heard it here. It's possible. Thank you, Janine. And mm-hmm. folks, uh, if you enjoyed uh, today's uh, episode with the amazing Janine Roth, please do uh, download this episode. Uh, let your friends know to uh, listen and download the Soul Talk podcast. Again, it's been a, another special interview. So spread the word and uh, definitely apply. I want to invite you to apply the wisdom that Janine has shared. Apply everything you've learned from this conversation. We listen to the conversation, apply it in your life and send me an email at cootblackson at cootblackson.com. Let me know how you've enjoyed this conversation and any key takeaways and anything that's stirred in your life as a result of the conversation with Janine. Folks, I will see you next week. Mm. Uh, be ready for another special episode of Soul Talk. Mm. Much love, everyone. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.coopblackson.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.